culture that Petah Tikva with a P. Where you are, this is not Petah Tikva. Such a city, nobody knows it. Not a fun, not a art, not a culture. This is Petah Tikva with a B. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday. February 11th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Selected, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Welcome back. We've missed you. Aren't you nice. Thank you. <laughs> I right. love you. Yes. Also with, oh, you know, when we have to... Um, mm. Yeah, we have to mention here, you have yeah. a 40th anniversary. You you are the r- longest running show on Broadway, Peter. Here, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That we were, uh, Linda Connor and I were together 10 years before Phantom opened. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so <laughs> yes, congratulations. To Aren't you, you nice? Linda. Thanks. Oh, Thank you. It's very exciting to see that news. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Andrew Polk is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans know Andrew Polk from uh, the hit Broadway show, The Band's Visit, where he is uh, repeating his role from his off-Broadway appearance in The Band's Visit at the Atlantic Theatre Company. Uh, Some of the other off-Broadway shows that he has appeared in, Burning, Mouth to Mouth, The Accomplices, uh, Diner, which was a workshop, Walmartopia, The Green Zone, a bunch of things. Andrew, thanks for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us on Broadway Radio. It's my absolute pleasure. So you are uh, making your uh, debut appearance on Broadway in the band's visit. I uh, yeah, I am. Can you believe it? <laughs> I, I can't believe it because I'm thinking to myself, oh, we've seen Andrew in so many great things over the years. I, I'm exactly. sh- I had to go back and I had to go back and say, this can't be his debut. This got to be a mistake by a press rep. It, it is not a mistake. It is true. <clears throat> and the funny thing is, if like. Three years ago, you were to say, hey, you know, the first Broadway, you know, I've always wanted to be on Broadway, but if you were to say the first Broadway show you're going to be in is in a hit Broadway musical where you will be doing the majority of the dancing, I would be <laughs> laughing at you. <laughs> well, you know, those, those Cats auditions never really worked out for you, but I'm glad Well, I guess they added up, yeah. you know. <laughs> so in real life... You are married yeah. to an Israeli woman, and uh, you it, it's a rumor is that you base your character in the band's visit after your father-in-law. So tell us a little bit about this. Oh, uh, that's great. Well, I, yes, I'm, an Israeli, I'm married to a wonderful uh, Israeli woman, uh, Zohar Tarosh Polk, who also did uh, the dialect, um, uh, was a dialect coach for the Israelis on, in the band's visit, oh. and was a dramaturg as well. And, Get her uh, on the phone. <laughs> yeah, where is she? And uh, and uh, so, uh, lucky me, I get to live with the dialect coach. But um, so, no, I am lucky. Actually, she's wonderful. But uh, I, you know, I kind of took parts of parts of. There's a little of her mom in there. There's a little of her dad. I kind of, I actually used a line in rehearsal that her mom says all the time that they actually put in. Which uh, uh, her mother-in-law says, uh, "Wow, wow, wow!" all the time, and I just 
came out with that, and Itamar Moses loved it, so now it's a prominent part of the dialogue there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I drew on sort of a combination of things, and I have a lot of wonderful Israeli friends, and I sort of used sort of not just specific people like her dad and her mom, but like general characteristics that I've really learned and heard over the last few years of getting to know Israel as well that I, I, I try to put into this character, Avram, in the band's visit. Well, I have to say, really, Andrew, I thought that the dialect work was superb across the board. I think I may have even mentioned it when we first talked yeah. about the show on this podcast. So aside from the acting being so great, I, I I mean, I'm not Israeli. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I don't well, have spent so time. thank you so much. It. It's it's a tough one. It's actually, a, and I, I'm uh, I, along with a lot of our wonderful castmates, all you know, pride ourselves on being able to do accents, and it's a real tough one to get your arms around. So, well, thank yeah. you so much. And absolutely, a lot of the credit goes to Zoe, my wife. <laughs> all right. Had you known of this picture uh, that on which the musical is based, the 2007 movie, before anything happened with your auditioning? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I had um, no. The answer is no. Okay. Um, but what happened is really funny. Um, I was asked to do a reading of the new version of the book of the band's visit um, by Edomar Moses, and I didn't. Need, and all I knew was that David Cromer. Uh, was directing it. Um, I don't know musicals very well. I'm not really from the musical world. Uh, so I didn't even know it was a musical. So mm. I just went to the Atlantic Theater and read along with some other wonderful actors who do quite a bit of television and obviously had no designs, I think, on being in a musical. We just read this thing. And when there was a song, this guy named David Yazbek would press play on his boombox <laughs> and a song would come out. And I'm like, hey, I guess this is a musical hmm, it's interesting and so uh as i was leaving i guess it went well and david cromer said do you sing and i said yeah yeah <laughs> sure that yeah. instills confidence yeah <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> and then you know smash cut to four auditions later um uh, then i that's how it happened for me with it but then during that period i did watch the movie uh-huh long See, I didn't forget your question. No, you came didn't. around to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, the, so the new question becomes, uh, is there much of a difference between the character in the movie and in the musical? There's a huge difference. The biggest difference is that in the movie, um, his wife is very much alive, and in, and, and, and the, in the musical, uh, she has died. And that leads to um, that the big number that I sing, The Beat of Your Heart, where I mm -hmm. recall the time I met my wife and sort of go into what love means and maybe inspire the others around me to examine that. Mm -hmm. Early on, was it a case where you said, wow, this is really going to amount to something? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. I, all, I think most of us would tell you we had no idea. I mean, we thought that it was... Some, we, you know, the people involved were so great. David mm -hmm. Cromer, David Yazbek, Itamar Moses. I mean, mm -hmm. I have so much respect for all of them. And the material, I love the movie, but and the songs were nice, but we really didn't know what we had until sort of halfway in between in previews, uh, during previews at the Atlantic, mm -hmm. something very magical happened. I, I thought, hey, it's nice, you know, nice songs and stuff. <laughs> but uh, what happened was, 
if you've seen the show, it's on a rotating stage, and we didn't really have the the budget at the Atlantic to actually build a rotating stage in rehearsal. So the sum effect of that was that we ended up essentially rehearsing the play during previews, uh-huh. um, staging the thing on the rotating stage as we were in front of audiences, literally. So that is so important to the play and how specifically you stage that stuff that the play didn't really kick in until sort of when we were in previews. And consequently, I mean, uh, concurrently, that's about the time when the, the uh, election, the presidential election happened. Uh, and uh, something happened. Something sad. happened, right? It, it was not subtle. People started coming backstage, and they were crying, and they were, they, you know, they were very moved by it, and it was a bizarre experience from our perspective because we were like, "Hey, relax, you know, some, some nice songs." I mean, you know, because uh, we really had never seen <laughs> what people were watching ourselves. Mm. You mentioned yeah, uh, d- you mentioned a new book by Itamar Moses. Can you refresh my memory as to was there a previous version by someone else? Sorry, no. It was always Edomar, but he had written a new he had written a new version of the book he had oh. previously written, and they wanted to hear it out loud, which is why they called me. Oh, gotcha. Thanks. Yeah, um, and they had been working on, you know, they've been working on this thing for seven seven years. You know, uh, Pal Prince uh, was attached as a director before David came on, David Cromer. Right. So it's been it's been going through workshops for a long time, and. How long this is, how, how long have you been involved with it? It's about uh, I started that first we did a workshop after my my many readings and auditions for those guys. It was like uh, a year and a half ago. It was the summer of July. It was the summer of 2016. Okay. The um, uh, very often art and commercialism do not intersect uh, and that the, the, the audiences don't turn out for, uh, you know, an artistic triumph. But when that started happening here, to build upon what Peter was mentioning before, uh, at what point did it, it, was it like opening night on Broadway when it clicked on you guys that this was a huge hit or did it, did it click earlier? I mean, it, we are so blessed, honestly. I mean, I hate when people say that, but we yeah. really truly are. I mean, we've been very lucky. It feels uh, since the first preview, we've been sold out. And so, uh, you know, you just get used to that, that people have been responding to it since the beginning. Um, I think that when we opened, you know, the reviews were so great, and um, everyone then jumped on even further. So, and I hear ticket sales are great, and um, it's just great. Sure. Um, there was a funny moment in our opening night at the opening night party. There was just thousands of people and big party, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, somehow around ten o'clock at night, it got really quiet, and oh. I saw whole <laughs> groups of people around about five or six uh, in a group huddled around the glow of their smartphones oh. as mm. the reviews came out, and got, and it was really a magical moment when we everyone realized it was gonna. It was very well reviewed, and you know we feel fortunate. That, that glow is called the Brantley effect. 
<laughs> so. Well, what's what's also very nice is this is a show that does not rely on pyrotechnics, and it's very important for Broadway to have musicals that are small. And I don't mean that yeah. in terms of the theme, certainly not. But uh, that one doesn't have to have uh, the famous cliches of chandeliers and barricades, etc. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so, I do. I, I, isn't that nice? That I mean, not that there's anything wrong with uh, nothing. I love nothing. I love a good chandelier, and, but it's. Uh, this is nice that it, we've been embraced for telling a, a simple story um, that has touched a lot of people. And it, it, you know what I mean? I've heard that, I heard that there was a talk back the other night. A friend of mine saw the show and there was a talk back. Uh, have they've been uh, have those been happening regularly? Regularly? Oh, wait, we have so many talk backs. Yeah, we have we have about two or three a week. Um, wow. So there's I mean, it's interesting. Um, yeah. The people want to, people trying to try to process it. It's not what they're used to seeing on Broadway, and I think people people like that. It's something new. The form is new, and um, it's more meditative. And uh, you know, you're getting to know all these people. And you know, in one sense, nothing happens. In one sense, a lot happens. I think in the show. Andrew, the uh, uh, you had mentioned before uh, when they asked you if you sang. Um, yeah. that, that perhaps it wasn't the first thing that came off the top of your head, but now you have a cast <laughs> recording coming out. What, did you ever imagine you'd be uh, have so... a cast recording of a hit Broadway show coming out? <laughs> it is um, no. <laughs> the answer is no. And it is uh, really uh, something that makes it just tickles me. Um, I won't lie, I worked really hard on sure. my voice in the last That's two great. years. And and to get there, so a lot of my credit goes to Andrea Grody, um, my vocal coach, who is also the musical director of the, the band's visit. Um, uh, I, I just feel like she and I together came to this place, and it, it's um, it's really gratifying to to get there and realize all the hard work that went into it. You know what I mean? That I wouldn't have expected. In, in a way, my career really wasn't going kind of in that direction. Um, you know what I mean? That I that I would be now settling into a nice long run of a hit Broadway musical. <laughs> mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's but that's what happened. It's really it's really gratifying. Well, the first time it's I ever scary. saw you, the first time I ever yeah. saw you was at Two River Theater Company doing um, the Pavilion. Oh so, wow! Yeah. So uh, and and you made a very uh, deep impression there. Uh, no question about that. Um, regional theater. I know that you're involved with something called the Cape Cod Project. I want to hear about mm-hmm. that. Well, the Cape Cod Theater Project uh, is a theater I I founded, and I ran as artistic director for 17 years. And it's um, wow. in the summers. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it, it started. Um, I used to be a member of the Circle Rep Company mm-hmm. years ago which is where Lamford Wilson and, um, you know, uh, Paul Vogel and all, all those guys cut their teeth. And um, I decided I wanted to have a little bit of artistic control in my life. And so a lot of my friends from Circle Rep, including uh, Lamford Wilson and Marshall Mason, helped us out. We uh, helped us start a, a play development company on Cape Cod in this place, uh, Woods Hole, Falmouth area, um, uh, just to develop new American plays. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. I had I didn't go to artistic director school. Yeah. I just started it, and 
it, it became successful right away. I was, and then I, we just kept doing it. And now I, I know uh, we have developed, I no longer run it. Hal Brooks does, but uh, we've developed like 70 plays at least half of which have gone on to Broadway off Broadway and around the world as full productions. Uh, and, um, yeah, um, we've had, you name every great theater artist almost, and they've been there to uh, work on their new plays. Are you from that part of the world? No, you know, my sister is, uh, my sister's, uh, married someone who is up there, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I started to fall in love with the area, and that's how that began. Yeah, and so, no, I stepped away from, I was used to be on the board, and I, I've just, this year, stepped away from it, but I don't, because it's, flourishing yeah, we, without me and we know what you're doing so yeah it makes sense. <laughs> i mean you you've stepped away from it uh you've got a hit broadway show you're doing it eight times a week uh you also are on television uh you yeah. have a reoccurring role in the new alan Cummings show instinct on cbs yeah. uh, which premieres in march uh yeah and <laughs> do you have a film with adam sandler and chris rock the week of in april yeah. when, when are you doing this how do you do this <laughs> it, it, it uh, a good question. Um, uh, it's been a busy year and uh, fun, though. Uh, this summer, I spent all summer doing the movie with um, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, called The, the Week of, uh, directed by Robert Smigel. Do you know who he is? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, no, it's Triumph the Insult Dog, but yeah. also this mm-hmm. brilliant, brilliant writer. And uh, I did that all summer, and while I was doing that, was also filming episodes of Instinct, um, and I did a, I did an episode while I was rehearsing the band's visit. There were a couple of hairy moments between producers trying to organize it, and but everyone was very kind, and it all worked out. I just was a little bit tired, but um, we I got that, and it was perfect because I literally stopped shooting the movie the day before we started rehearsals for the band's visit. So it felt like so maybe someone's looking after me there. Instinct in the week of shooting in New York, or uh, the week of shot on Long Island. I spent a lot of time on Long Island this summer, last summer, and then the Instinct shoots in New York. Yes, it does. But House of Cards doesn't shoot in New York, does it? And you no, House did... of Cards shoots in Bal- House, House of Cards shoots in Baltimore. Yeah, and you did two um, seasons of House of Cards. I guess that was pre yeah. uh, off Broadway. Um, band's visit. Wow, that is a good question. I lots of Amtrak back and forth. <laughs> there was lots of definitely lots of Amtrak. Um, I don't uh, no, I did shoot some House of Cards during rehearsals for the band's visit, but it didn't ever conflict. And it was mainly in the previous summer those episodes. So yeah, it worked out again. It worked out um, miraculously. Um, yeah, a lot of time, a lot of time on the Amtrak. <laughs> that is, that, that's the life of a, yeah. life of a New York actor. You, here you are. Yeah, very lucky to be a life of a working actor and, uh, and, and also really good projects and, uh, really, it was funny that doing, you know, doing the, uh, movie this summer, I, I, I realized I was doing a scene with Chris Rock and Adam Sandler and Rachel Dratch mm-hmm. and, Steve Buscemi, and then it was being directed by Robert Smigel, and I realized, oh my God, I am surrounded mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the funniest people in the world. <laughs> and 
I, um, they they literally have um, stand-up comedians um, on standby to throw alternative lines uh, in case they don't like what's uh-huh. going on in the script. So in other words, the comedy part is pretty much covered. And um, I, I just felt such pressure to be funny that I think at one point I started improvising a scene. And Robert Smigel very kindly came up to me and said, you know what, um, we've got this. You just don't worry about the funny stuff. We're good. We, and I realized I just really need to just invest in my role. And uh, I, I'm like literally surrounded by the funniest people in the world. Uh, so, Tell us a little uh, briefly about your, your background. Uh, Peter asked you before if you were from the uh, Cape Cod area, but you said no. Are, where are you from? And, and it, look, it looks like you studied in London as well. I did. I um, am from California, from Northern California, Berkeley, the People's Republic uh-huh. of Berkeley, California. <laughs> and five five sub-Californias. <laughs> That's right. Um, actually went to the same high school at Edomar Moses and uh, Ariel Sachel, uh, who was in the cast. We went to the same high school. Uh, and then I, I uh, when I was uh, in high school, went to the sort of high school program that ACT in San Francisco had for young actors. Um, and then I went to college. I went to Tufts University in Boston. And then I got uh, a Fulbright scholarship to go train in London after Tufts. And I went to this place called the Weber Douglas Academy, which is now the Central School of uh, uh, Central School in London. And I trained there. And while I was there, I sent, I sent, um, envelopes out to American agents hoping someone would notice the stamps uh-huh. and pay attention to me. And I did get an interview from one agent um, that set me up with uh, Neil Simon at the time, uh, the, all the productions that were going on. And I ended up booking um, one of the lead roles in the national tour of Biloxi Blues. So my first job out of, out of Charma School was a, a two-year tour of Biloxi Blues. Um, and that's what started off my career. And I've sort of been working ever since. Um, you know, sort of sometimes more than others. <laughs> that's an awesome story. But I want to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Uh, Broadway fans can find Andrew Polk uh, on the uh, uh, in the band's visit, not on the band's visit, but in the band's <laughs> visit on Broadway. Uh, also coming up is Alan Cummings' uh, show Instinct on CBS, which is coming out in mid-March, and the Adam Sandler Chris Rock film The Week Of, which uh, comes out in April. Andrew, you are doing great work. Keep it up, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, my ears are thirsty It was really great to speak with Andrew. I I have a funny story about the band's visit. A friend of mine went to see it the other night, and apparently his mother was a huge fan of Tony Shalhoub, uh, both for his work on Wings – 
years ago, but also on Monk. And she really watched them religiously. And so my friend waited outside the stage door afterwards to try to talk to Tony and maybe take a selfie and get a, a, a signature from him, an autograph from him. And uh, so he did, in, in fact, get to talk with him briefly and take the photo. And, and just as he was taking the photo, he turned to Tony and said, uh, you know, my mother has spent more time in bed with you than with my father. Ah. <laughs> and apparently... Just as like, just as the picture like was being taken, and, and Tony said, Tony's response was, "Well, that's weird." <laughs> <laughs> I just love that story. <laughs> All right, <laughs> so let's um, start our review section. Uh, Peter, you got to see White House Cant Cant Cantata Cantina Cantata. You Quintana. say tomato, I say tomato. All right, Montclair State University. So tell us about that. Well, uh, the reason I mention this is because uh, this was first, the first iteration of this was on Broadway in 1976 as 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, that's kind of interesting because this was a show by Leonard Bernstein and Alan J. Lerner, uh, both of whom were tremendous heavyweights who uh, certainly were involved with classic musicals ranging from West Side Story to My Fair Lady. So everybody had high hopes for this show. Uh, it was during the bicentennial, nineteen seventy-six, and it was going to be a celebration of Americana. And specifically, obviously, if it's called sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, it's going to be about the White House. And that turned out to be a bit of a problem because you know places aren't really good characters, are they? Well, they decided to deal with the presidents from Washington to the first. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, that seemed arbitrary, too. Why stop there? You know, I mean, and somebody said, well, you know, they were doing the first hundred years of uh, the White House. No, they weren't, because um, it, it, it just shouldn't play that way, because people think of Washington before he got into the White House, you know, that uh, all the history there. Well, anyway, uh, Ken Howard played all the presidents, and Patricia Routledge, um, who plays Hyacinth, um, bouquet um best known for that in uh, that uh, british tv series were, were all the first ladies but what Lerner also did was decide it, there was a big tv series at the time called upstairs downstairs and most people think he was influenced by that thinking okay let's deal with the slaves uh, who later became servants and um they were played throughout um for the hundred plus years history of um by uh, two black performers, and um, although <laughs> there was uh, uh, the the black slave Lud um, was played early on by a younger character, um, he pretty much stayed the same after that. But they became um, servants after a while, of course, when uh, after the Civil War, after the Emancipation Proclamation. One of the strangest things in the show that's really strange, is that Lincoln was never part of the show. You would think he would be. James P. Cannon, his predecessor, is part of the show. Andrew Johnson, his, uh, who followed him, um, it, there's an allusion to him. And there is an allusion to the fact that Mary Todd Lincoln will not leave the White House. Uh, she's staying there, but of course, you know, so she doesn't get to sing, and I am telling you I am not going, but nevertheless, we hear about her. The music was mag. 
magnificent. And my, many of the lyrics were extraordinary beyond belief. So it was really too bad that this never got a cast album. It should have. Of course, the show only ran seven performances. Never a good example of uh, record companies uh, saying, oh, we want to do it. In fact, they had a record deal with Capitol Records, but Capitol refused to do it. The show was sponsored by Coca-Cola, of all um, organizations. They put up the 900000 which turned out to be $1.2 million, and um, eventually disavowed themselves. They took the names off the poster um, during the Philadelphia engagement. They didn't want to have anything to be uh, to do with it because it, it was considered such a disaster. My friend Paul Roberts was there on closing night in Philadelphia where a patron was so disgruntled by the show that he actually broke a window in the lobby. Um, in fact, this has been written about, and Paul told me about this when he saw the show in, in 76, and uh, I didn't really quite believe him. I thought he was exaggerating, but I've since read it you know, in some books. So, so this was a very controversial show. I saw it in the Washington tryout, and I thought it was um, – I was so impressed by the score. That's what really did it, and I didn't really care. And I thought the, it was one of those things where the first act you come out saying, gee, that's, this isn't a bad show. This isn't bad. And I never learned that when the first act makes me say, this isn't bad, the second act's going to be murder, and it was. But anyway, aside, of course, from the famous – in uh, <laughs> people are still talking about it, and here I am talking about it now, so proving my point, uh, duet for one, which is where um, Mrs. Grant is upset that she's not going to be first lady anymore, and Mrs. Hayes can't wait to get in the White House and be first lady. Uh, the reason it's called duet for one is because Patricia Routledge played both ladies. She had this very funny headpiece. It wasn't a wig. It was like a hat. And she flipped it back and forth as she went from one character to the other. And it really became quite a cat fight. And if you think that I'm being inelegant by using that term, let me point out that Lerner actually has in his lyrics, meow, meow. So, I mean, you know, well, anyway, years passed and uh, both Lerner and Bernstein died. And um, the heirs to Bernstein estate said, you know, we think this is a pretty good property and we really believe that it should live. But we don't really like 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We don't like everything about it. So maybe what we should do is um, repurpose it as a White House cantata. And they went out and they got a bunch of artists and uh, they made a recording. Now that sounds like it would be pretty good. I think the recording is abysmal beyond belief. Why? Because they hired opera singers with capital B, capital V, beautiful voices. And these are the people who want to show off uh, um, how great their voices are and they don't get into character at all. Let me point out, I actually looked at the liner notes in, in a White House cantata and I counted up how many operas these people used in their bios and how many musicals they used in their bios. And the score was 36 operas and two musicals. And the two musicals, by the way, were Candide and On the Town, uh, <laughs> Bernstein properties. So obviously it was a case where um, Bernstein had some affinity with them, so they, they hired them. But the, the recording is just terrible. So um, so here it was at Montclair State University, uh, Gary John LaRosa, who has um, certainly directed Aida, but the musical, not the opera. And he has a musical theater background. Now, granted, this was done by the music department at Montclair State and not the theater department, which is an excellent department, by the way. This was my first um, interaction with the music department at Montclair State. And thank God they had uh, a, a Broadway style director up there doing the show because it wasn't just arcane um, singing. Now, it is true it was done in one of these concert halls, you know, the Ashwood, that 
that thing. Uh, the lights don't dim totally uh, during um, the performance, which is great for taking notes, by the way. And uh, But the thing is, the, the, what was so good was the fact that, yes, these people had beautiful voices as well, but Gary John LaRosa said, no, 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 you are going to be characters as well. So you got a nice halfway house between what happened on Broadway with the Mark Callinger, God rest its soul, in uh, 1976. And, um, and, and you know, there, there, is, there are some operatic flourishes in the score, to be sure. But anyway, um, it's, it's a very exciting score, and I wish that this would get more airings. But uh, we had to take what we could get, and uh, certainly the experience at Montclair State was um, a solid one and made a good case for the show. Now, ha, let me also point out that when I got there and I looked at the songs in the uh, listing in the, in the program, I was amazed not to see Duet for One. My God, you're not going to do that song? Are you kidding? Are you crazy? Wow. So, uh, well, up, up, up. But then right. I noticed it said the first lady of the land and dot, 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 uh, Lucy Hayes, um, Julia Grant. You know, so I said, oh, all right, they're doing it. Well, the reason they called it the first lady of the land, not duet for one, because it was a duet for two. They actually had two performers uh, doing the parts. So you didn't get that flipping headpiece back and forth. Uh, you had one woman playing Lucy and one woman playing Julia. So um, it's, it's it still it was terrific. It's, it's a great piece of material, you know, because you don't expect to see first ladies uh, hating each other. Um, hmm. But uh, but they do. <laughs> I don't know if this is historically accurate, by the way, but it certainly was the case in uh, 1600. So um, I would like to see more White House cantatas. I, frankly, I'd like to see 1600. But um, I'd like to see more White House cantatas done in a musical theater style rather than the operatic style. So I was glad the road that uh, Gary John LaRosa took was an avenue, um, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, rather than um, some rarefied boulevard of opera. Peter, isn't First Lady of the Land a title of his song in Irving Berlin's Mr. President? bet it is. It's a very good song, too. One That's not a very good score, I'm sorry to say. And it's funny, I mentioned Paul Roberts, as he said to me once, oh, I tried so hard to like that score. We all did at the time, because it was supposed to be a big hit. You know, yeah, yeah and it was, uh, yeah, but, uh, and, but that's a very good piece of material in um, Mr. President, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, and that didn't work out either. I don't know, um, maybe these uh, musicals dealing with presidents um, have a tough time of it, so, um, but these two certainly did. Peter, I have to... Uh throw some applause in for Gary John LaRosa. I worked with him many years oh, ago. Oh, how nice, yeah. Worked with him many years ago, and he is such a great director that I'm I'm very surprised that I haven't seen him uh, on, you know, either on Broadway or, or a major off-Broadway production. Um, he's such a great director. I did, I did uh, My Fair Lady with him. Huh? Uh, and he... I mean, he's just so thorough, and he's a great choreographer as well as being a director. Uh, and he's uh, probably best known for doing many, many productions of Fiddler on the Roof. He was uh -huh. he was in, I think he was in A Fiddler on Broadway, and uh -huh. then he has restaged it all over the world, in fact. Uh, such a, uh, he's so passionate about theater and such a good person, I have to say. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that that uh, he was able to pull this off really well uh, he did. at Montclair. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. All right, Michael, let's move forward to City Center, where you saw Hey, Look Me Over. So tell us about this uh, Encores production. 
Yes, uh, this was apparently uh, quite a controversial presentation of Encores because uh, their original mission, uh, as many of us understand it, was to present musicals that were obscure in some way and or and or unlikely for revival. Um, some of the shows that they have done over <laughs> over the decades since then uh, have not quite fit that uh, that description. But this show, uh, some people objected to because rather than presenting a show in more or less full format with full book and score, it was excerpts, uh, little scenes. Uh, and little encapsulations of of several shows that they said they have considered, uh, Encores has considered about presenting in full over the years and hasn't gotten to yet, uh, with the the thought perhaps to see how the audience responded to each one and maybe uh, <laughs> maybe move one or two of them to full production at some point. Uh, the shows are. Uh, that accepted were, are or were Wildcat, All American, Jamaica, Milk and Honey, Mac and Mabel, Subways Are for Sleeping, uh, where we heard only the overture, Green Willow, Sail Away, and George M. Uh, and the cast, uh, well, let's see, uh, directed by Mark Bruni, music director Rob Berman, uh, conceived by Jack Vertel, and uh, narration was provided by Bob Martin of uh, the drowsy chaperone uh, fame is more or less in his persona of the man in chair from that show. It doesn't actually say in the in the playbill I'm looking here who wrote uh, the narration, but I can assume it was maybe a collaboration between Jack Vertel and Bob Martin. Anyway, I thought um, I personally do not object to to the idea of this show the concept of it the structure of it in theory i i was actually looking forward to uh seeing these excerpts from all these shows that are so relatively obscure uh i in practice i i didn't think it worked that well and i'm not sure exactly why i uh, some of the shows had far more of the book uh the dialogue than I thought they might have uh, an example being Green Willow. And in that case and several other cases, I would say the books uh, just just from what we were shown of them uh, and what we heard in this presentation are really not good overall. And so uh, I understand that Encores, uh, I'm sure they they used uh, some of the dialogue to try to set up the songs and put them in context. But the only show I thought really worked uh, as far as the the dialogue and the book scenes, although there there wasn't as much, was Mac and Mabel. And that seemed to be, um, uh, you know, certainly one of the two audience favorites of the evening, I would say. There was great applause. Doug Sills played Mac. um, And, you know, I saw him do... Uh, the the more or less the full show years ago in L.A. as part of the L.A. reprise uh, series, and and his Mabel in on that occasion was Jane Krakowski. Um, so it was, and that was in two thousand. So it was really fun to see him again in in, in a little bit of Mac and Mabel, and the audience just loved him. The other tremendous ovation uh, was for Clifton Duncan uh, for his rendition of Never Will I Marry from Green Willow. Uh, he just 
you could feel the audience just loving it and the applause went on and on. It was almost a case of him stopping the show, not quite, but very close. Uh, but on a personal note, I would have loved <laughs> the fact that Encores did this show, if only uh, this Hey Look Me Over show, if only because uh, they played the overture to Green Willow, which starts with a melody so gorgeous that every time I'm telling you, every time I hear it, I almost start to cry. It's uh, the song is called Gideon Briggs. I love you. And it just starts. uh, The overture starts very quietly with chimes and then uh, some. I guess woodwinds and uh, creep in, and then suddenly the brass and the full string section come in with this gorgeous melody from that song. So that um, that's the kind of thing that Encores uh, gives us as supreme gifts, and I'm so glad that uh, that it, that this series continues and i do even though i do not think that this evening was a complete success i i as i said i i have no objection to it in theory one um unfortunate thing is that uh oh uh the uh other section that the audience really really seemed to love in addition to mac and mabel and uh never will i marry was the finale which was uh george m uh, some numbers from george m the the musical based on the life of George M. Cohan and featuring his songs. Uh, Clyde Alvis uh, was George M., uh, was George M. Cohan, and he uh, did a really great job singing and dancing. He's, he's really one of our great Broadway dancers, and he's been around for a while. Um, but uh, I was disappointed to, to uh, hear in, in retrospect, uh, because it was held as a surprise for the audience, that Joel Gray... Uh, uh, was to have appeared in that sequence as a surprise. And apparently he did appear in the dress rehearsal and the opening performance on, uh, I guess, was that Wednesday or Thursday Thursday? evening? Thursday, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But then uh, I saw the show on Friday night and he was not there. um, And there was no, there was just a rather cryptic mention of him at the end of uh, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you. Joel Gray thanks you. And I didn't understand what that meant because I had not heard. People had been very good about keeping this secret. Um, so it's unfortunate that he uh, – that I that I missed him and uh, even more unfortunate that apparently he's, he'd missed due to illness. So we certainly wish him the best. And it would have been uh, fabulous to see him on stage doing a little bit of George M. But – uh, with all of that talent present that I mentioned, um, uh, it really did. Oh, I did. I mention the, the cast. No, I, I didn't. Did I? Uh, Clyde Alvis, Reed Burney, Carolee Carmelo, Brittany Coleman, Clifton Duncan, Mark Kudish, Judy Kuhn, Bob Martin, Tam Mutu, B.B. Newworth, Nancy Opal, Douglas Sills, Alexandra Sosha, and Vanessa Williams were the featured uh, soloists. And then there was a, a, an ensemble as well. So I I'm, would not object to f- future projects of this kind by Encores. I just think that um, perhaps we saw too much of the books and maybe the – Maybe, maybe in some cases <laughs> here, uh, we got an idea uh, of why these shows are rarely, if ever, revived. 
Oh, but these are good scores. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I'm talking really... about the books. I yeah. know, I know, I know. Uh, and that's why I said these are good scores. <laughs> I'm not going to bat for the librettos at all. Uh, but, um, you know, it's funny you mentioned about uh, Never Will I Marry because um, Anthony Perkins was always very embarrassed by his performance on the cast album, which I don't think is bad, but he did. He claimed he had a cold that day and um, he made it a personal mission to go to record stores and buy copies of Green Willow to get them out of the hands of people who wanted them. And he gave them to his agent, Helen Merrill. I had read this in the paper and I didn't really quite believe it, but in... Um when I was in Helen Merrill's office, I brought it up. She opened the closet, and they're stacked, um, oh, not quite as high as a weeping willow, but uh, enough green willows to make collectors weep at that time because it wasn't an easy album to get uh, during the 70s. Um, it has been released here and there um, on a couple of different labels, uh, but um, at the moment it's not available, which is really a shame because it's a very atypical score from Frank mm -hmm. Lesser, especially the fact that um, melismas are uh, things that are not supposed to be uh, done in good songwriting, uh, in case our listeners don't know what a melisma is, the best one to use an example is where air is love, uh, when you do a, a syllable over a whole bunch of notes. And um, every one of the songs in Green Willow, except one, has a melisma in it. So that was obviously a style he was going for in this very strange town um, that doesn't really exist. Um, but uh, it uh, it's still a phenomenal score, and uh, you know I, I really wish it could be made available again for those people who uh, who never heard it or want to hear it. So I'm glad they heard some of it in um, in um, this pr uh, production of Hey Look Me Over. I think that's really quite great that uh, they did manage to do that. And um, yeah, um, what's also interesting to me is um, only one of these shows was a hit, but it, it's interesting that um, they they included a hit, but it is a forgotten show, and that's Jamaica. Jamaica really did make money. Um, it ran 555 performances, which was quite a run in those days, um, and um, and Lena Horne, of course, was the main reason more than the show itself, I'll grant you, but it is a very entertaining cast album. I will admit that I agree with Walter Kerr's assessment. Can you make a good musical out of sheet music? Meaning the songs were great, but again, ah. as you point out, the book uh, wasn't. So, um, And um, I, I wonder how many people heard What a Country from All American and thought, uh, wait a minute, isn't that an Amtrak commercial? Because it was <laughs> the 70s. And um, so I don't know how many people uh, put two and two together there are under the original but um but yeah you know it 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 uh it does make a good case for these shows until you read the books so uh but it just goes to show that uh if somebody could get in there and revise these books and um find something to make them work that, that it would really be uh quite terrific but um that's much easier said than done to say the least another thing another song the audience heard from all american but not really is Once Upon a Time, uh, which when Lee Adams, who wrote the lyrics to Charles Strauss's music, when he was on our podcast some time ago, um, he, he had freely admitted in response to my question that that was a trunk song uh, in the sense that it had been written by he and Mr. Strauss earlier for another show. I can't remember the title at the moment. And – um, called yep. what the, What's the Rush, and it was out in Long Island in 1956. <laughs> that was uh, six years before All Americans showed up. Yeah, so I guess they thought that not a lot of people had heard that, <laughs> and they were safe to put it in. And and the Reed Burney, uh, and, and also Judy Kuhn, but Reed Burney was the person who sang it 
and in Hey, Look Me Over and uh, many uh, people, uh, I and many other people that I know had do not recall hearing Reed Bernie sing before. So that was he did a really nice job with that. Oh, and, and finally, your point about the melismas. Um, that's a really good point. I think I'm thinking maybe that melisma is viewed as a style that you would use for more lyrical, older fashion, maybe uh, types of scores that are meant to uh, depict, uh, you know, romantic, fictional, older type uh, places. And that certainly applies to Green Willow, which is this sort of um, bucolic uh, fable-like fantasy world. And in fact, Peter, that section of the overture that I mentioned huh? uh, that I love so much is a melisma when it turns uh, yeah. up being sung in the show. It's, um, I love you, love you. Right, I'm telling you. <laughs> You know, but on the other hand, too, um, I'll, I'll have to check out Most Happy Feller and look for Melismas because I don't think they're they're in there. And that's, of course, a very romantic show as well and a very operatic one as well. Um, it's often been referred to as an opera, though Frank Lesser always famously said it's a musical with a lot of music and a lot of good music, too, a lot of great music, to say the least. But anyway, um, it, it, he was obviously making some sort of statement with all these Melismas because the only song uh, that doesn't have one is one called uh, Could Have Been a ring which is a funny um a nice comedy song but for the most part really we're talking about uh a very different style here for him and fittingly so because really this is a a, a, a another worldy type of musical um and uh dealing with a, a family where there's a curse where the the father always runs off and uh, finds his own uh happiness so um I, I started the, the the novel once on which it's based, and I didn't get very far, and because uh, a lot of it is very twee, mm-hmm. and uh, which is what Walter Kerr said in his review that uh, he had a very funny way of expressing it, and I would urge everybody to go to Steve Susskind's marvelous book, um, Opening Night on Broadway, where he uh, summarizes reviews and uh, read Walter Kerr's review of Green Willow, and it's um, very very funny. It's it's not mean funny. It, it's not kind funny, don't misunderstand me, but it's not mean funny, but it, it does make its point about why uh, Greenwellow was a little on the twee side. All right, Peter, you got up to Boston where you saw the uh, national tour of Love Never Dies, which uh, is uh, touring around all parts of the United States. Uh, so tell us about that. Well, uh, in musical theater, there's one cliche that doesn't quite hold true, and that is you never get a second chance to make a first impression because we have revival, we have revisals, and all this kind of business. So um, so many moons ago, I did go to London to see Love Never Dies. In fact, what I did was go on a Tuesday night after seeing Phantom of the Opera in the afternoon because I wanted to see the original and then see the sequel, which is what Love Never Dies is. And... Um, what I found interesting that day was the fact that um, um, I, I don't get press seats in London, so I went to the half-price booth in Leicester Square and bought my Phantom tickets, which was seventh row orchestra on the side, and my Love Never Dies ticket was third row dead center. Now, really, the show uh, Phantom had been running a long time at that point, and yet it was harder to get uh, a better seat um, than it was for Love Never Dies. And by the way, when I got to the theater to see Love Never Dies, the first two rows were absolutely empty. Uh, the place uh, was about a third full. So so this um, has uh, been a disappointment of sorts. But I have to say, I think they've really done a good job in um, in refurbishing it. Now, for one thing, the, the great 
uh, song that everybody loved, um, Till I Hear You Sing Once More, which was the Phantom song, wanting Christine to sing his newest song, which, by the way, is called Love Never Dies, is, um, is a dynamic song, and it came about 10 minutes into the show. Well, now it starts the show, and you're immediately galvanized, because uh, it's, and you really get uh, saying, oh, well, I'm hungry for more, this is going to be uh, really a great evening. Um, aside from Love Never Dies, which did get the greatest applause of the night, uh, the other songs are fine. They really are. They're fine. Uh, nothing wrong with them. But, you know, what I thought more than anything else while watching this show was I wonder if this show could be a success on Broadway now because the music is very, very operatic. And I'm not sure that that is going to sell anymore. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Phantom's still running, isn't it? Yeah, but Phantom has a reputation. Phantom's got a, a grandfather clause in. And the thing is. Um, when Phantom opened, uh, yeah, that's the way Broadway musicals were sound- London musicals specifically, but that's the way musicals were sounding back then. So that's what people expected back then. But good Lord, in the 30 years since Phantom has opened, and a couple of weeks ago it was 30 years um, to the day, we're now in the era of jukebox musicals and rock musicals. The baby boomers who have aged into theater goers want to hear the music they knew as kids or stuff that sounded like the kids. So I would think Love Never Dies would have a really hard time of succeeding on Broadway. This doesn't mean the audience didn't go crazy for it um, at the um, at the sh- uh, actual performance I saw, which, by the way, was literally on Super Bowl Sunday, literally the moment the game began, that's when uh, the show began, 6.30 at night on Sunday a week ago. And um, so there were a lot of um, empty seats in the house because, of course, this was in Boston and the New England Patriots were playing. And um, I know at, uh, at intermission, um, I turned on my phone. And I said to uh, my friend Jay Clark, whom I took, um, gee, let's see how the Patriots are doing. And the guy in front of me said uh, they're behind 15 to 6. He had already turned on his phone to find out what was going on. There were a lot of empty seats, but uh, the people who were there really liked uh, Love Never Dies. So, yeah, I think it might be all right for, for the provinces as far as that's concerned. But for a eight performance a week, sustained Broadway run, I'm not sure that it could do it. Um, I hope I'm wrong on that because I do think it's a very, very smart show. One of the ballsiest things that happens in this show is they made Raul a skunk, a drunken skunk, and a gambler, and a terrible guy. Now, that's a very smart thing to do because we don't expect it. Raul, you know, all I ask of you, and you know, he's in love with Christine, and she's the only thing in his life, and nothing else matters. Well, you know, time takes its toll. This is 10 years later. So, um, so that's very, very smart to see their marriage in trouble. Now, you might not believe that love never dies. Um, all of us have had experiences in our lives where love has very much died um, and buried. But um, but anyway, Christine uh, still loves him no matter what. Uh, in for a penny, in for a pound, I guess, is the way she feels. She's married to him. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of drama involving their child. And um, he certainly gets himself into some trouble. And, um, and that becomes very dramatic as well. I think the show really succeeds on its own terms. Um, and uh, what happens is the Phantom uh, has moved to Coney Island, of all places. You wouldn't expect him to be there, where he 
he's um, opened a, a type of carnival, and uh, but he still has bigger um, aspirations, and he wants Christine to sing for him again. Um, well, she so he does wind up hiring her to come to America. She's done very, very well in France, but the thing is she doesn't have any money because the husband's gambling it away. So she's got to take this gig. And, um, and he actually says one uh, – Raul actually says in one point, you know, well, I guess you're blaming me for everything. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean you should, but she doesn't. So – um, so it was uh, a, a perfectly decent uh, time, and um, but I'm afraid that's just not going to be enough for a Broadway run. So if you're um, anywhere near where it's going to be playing through September at least on the road, um, try to see it because it, it, it does have a lot of entertainment value. And by the way, um, this was produced by Troika. Now, anybody who um, knows shows on the road knows that Troika is famous for having sets look like they cost a dollar fifty or – uh, things they picked up in the last half hour of somebody's yard sale. I mean, their productions are really known for being, you should pardon the expression, piss poor. That said, that's not the case here at all. They spent money on this one. So maybe they're trying to improve their lot as well. And that would be great for people around the country who have really had to suffer through uh, pathetic-looking productions from Troika. So just as Love Never Dies is trying to improve itself and with a good deal of rewriting and uh, reshuffling of songs, and um, Troika may be trying to get on the ball too. So um, I'm, I'm very glad for both of them that they're making a supreme effort to be better than they were. All right. So we'll have a list of all the stops in the show notes, a uh, list back to the Love Never Dies website. And the uh, the change in Raul makes me think of uh, after he finishes Love Never Dies, he could play Gaylord Ravenel. <laughs> yeah, there, there is – there is an analogy, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, that's very I, true. I thought of that too as you were describing it. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, you uh, saw a production of Home is a Verb by Rehabilitation Through the Arts, the RTA company. So tell us about that. Well, this is um, a new company that um, is trying to help uh, people who have um, who are in prison or released from prison. They go into prison. The, the fascinating statistic involving this is that when people get out of prison, 60% of them wind up going back. Uh, they just kind of just. People who have been in this program, uh, 5% of them go back. So once again, art heals, art helps. You know, And uh, by getting these guys involved in theater and putting on shows, it's really helped them to be terrifically successful. Now, what I saw, Home is uh, a Verb, was not a show done by prisoners, but by professional actors, but it was based on uh, stories of previously incarcerated men. Three of them got up after the performance to do a talkback, which may have set the record for the longest talkback I have ever attended. Uh, people were that interested and that galvanized by what had happened, because Things you don't think about when these guys get out. One guy said, I went in at 14 and got out at 29. I was there 15 years. And the thing was, in that time, tokens had turned into Metro cards. And I went up to the booth in the subway to buy a token. They said, what are you talking about? And go over to the machine. He was at the machine. He he didn't know what to do. People are in line. Come on, Mac. Let's get going. You know, that type of thing. You know, you don't think about things like that. Or he said, when I went to the grocery store, you know, looking even at toilet paper, you know, I, uh, now I'm seeing things like from made from recycled paper. I'm seeing uh, soft touch. I, I don't know what to think. I mean, I'm, I'm t all the decisions had been made for me when I was in prison and now I had to make my own decisions. And you don't think of, you know, toilet paper as being a big decision, but you really do come out discombobulated. Now, as many questions were, as were asked during the talk back, and I would say there were 20 of them, 
really. It went on for a lot. It went on for an hour. Uh, and that, to me, is a long talk back. Um, nobody, nobody asked the question, okay, what did these guys do? Because two of them, I think, said they were in for 25 years. That sounds like a very serious crime to me. Um, afterwards, I went up to the woman who's running the program, a marvelous lady, really terrific uh, person. Um, and I said to her, okay, let's talk about the ele- uh, elephant in the room. And, um, and the woman, Catherine Vaughans, uh, said to me, we don't ask them what they did. That's in the past. They've paid their debt to society. We're just interested in the present and the future. And I thought that was terrific, actually. It's true. They have paid their debt to society. Okay, sure. And these guys look like um, they, they were terrific human beings. I mean, I, I also remember when I met Charles Dutton, who had certainly uh, done time uh, being incarcerated. And again, the arts pulled him out of um, it and made a career for him. I looked in his face and I'm telling you, all I could see in that face was goodness. You know, so um, this is a, a, a project that wants to let bygones be bygones and uh, let these guys have a chance at a good life. And so I hope we see a lot, a lot from RTA rehabilitation through the arts. It would really be wonderful. All right. So we'll have a link to rehabilitation through the arts as well in the show notes if you want to check out their stuff. Uh, last review of the morning, Peter saw the thing with feathers at the Barrow Group, 312 West 36. So tell us about that. Uh, this is a play that has a lot of surprises in it, um, and it, it, it deals with uh, a young woman who um, – a, a teenager who goes on the internet and uh, meets a man. Okay, already you're a little bored, aren't you? You're figuring, oh, well, yeah, I understand. You know, she's going to get involved with him. He's going to show up. He's going to do terrible things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see where this is going. Um, not – quite. Um, There are plenty of surprises in this play, but one of the most surprising things is an actress named Alexa Shea, S-H-A-E, Niziak, N-I-Z-I-A-K. And I think she alone is worth seeing uh, the thing with feathers. It's a terrific play. The suspense is amazing. Uh, Your heart is in your mouth through the entire show. Uh, That said, Uh, As good as everybody is in it, and everybody is very good in it, I really have to single out this young woman who is such unnatural at acting. She is superb at not acting. Uh, the best type of acting there can be, not acting. She seems so real, so at home there on the stage um, and giving such an honest performance that I really think that that is the main reason you should get over to 312 West 36th Street and see the thing with feathers. And uh, what a shame that um, I'm really stressing her because everybody else and the play itself is galvanizing. And this is by the Barrow Group, uh, one of our most valuable theater troops. And uh, I really hope the thing with feathers um, has a career ahead of it, uh, that it won't just stop at, um, at this small venue. It really deserves to be seen, especially this young woman who has been in a few Broadway shows. Uh, she was in Matilda, but not playing Matilda. But um, I really, really uh, want to get my theater world nominators over there so that they can see this wonderful performance because uh, this is a, a dazzling uh, debut. Now, you might say, wait, she's been on Broadway. What we do with the Theater World Awards is really talk about significant debuts. If you have a small part in an ensemble, we don't count that against you. But um, this is a breakthrough role and this is a breakthrough performance. 
I haven't seen the play, but um, I hope to, and because it sounded really intriguing. And uh, this is a case where I haven't seen it, but I think even not having seen it, I think the title is pretty great. Because uh, if people don't know, hope is the thing with feathers is a quote from Emily Dickinson. And that sounds like that would really lead me to see what happens in this play. Oh, yeah. There's one surprise after the other. Um, By the way, have you ever heard that all of Emily Dickinson's poems can be set to the music of the Yellow Rose of Texas or the the Gilligan's Island theme. Um, So you might want to check that out. I usually set them to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. We all have our values. (laughs) Yes. So, Michael, uh, you're not going to be with us next week because you're going to be in D.C. seeing Chess and West Side Story. Why don't you give us a preview? Yes, I'm going to see Chess and West Side Story, both at the Kennedy Center. Uh, Chess is a production that uh, the cast includes, the leads include Karen Olivo, Raul Esparza, Ramin Karimlu, and Bryce Pinkham. And it's directed by Michael Mayer, and it's got a new book. They're trying, again, (laughs) uh, to put a, a book to Chess that equals... Uh, you know that 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 serves the incredible score. So I hope that that they're successful at that. Um, and that's uh, uh, as I said at the Kennedy Center. But in another uh, space at the Kennedy Center, the National Symphony is doing a. Uh, concert version of West Side Story, and the name uh, that I recognize most in that is Corey Cott, who's playing Tony. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, uh, the fact that I'm going to be seeing Raul Esparza um, caused me to uh, do some Googling on him, and I came up with an interview that I did with him when he did The Cradle Will Rock uh, at Encore some years ago. And it's funny, uh, there was something in it that that really struck me uh, as interesting. When Jonathan Groff was on our podcast a, a few weeks ago to uh, preview his Bobby Darren show at the 92nd Street Y Lyrics and Lyricists, which turned out to be a huge success, uh, Peter said something to him that uh, Jonathan loved the question. Peter's question was, uh, well, it's, well, Bobby Darren, of course, was married to Sandra D for some time. And Peter's question was, well, uh, was the first time you heard of Sandra D because she's mentioned in the lyrics of Greece. <laughs> and Jonathan uh, thought, loved that question. And he said, you know, I guess that maybe that was the first time I heard of her. Well, similarly, um, uh, the Cradle Will Rock is about, among other things, the creation of the WPA theater. And uh, in the interview that I did with Raul uh, at the time, I didn't ask him this, but he brought up that the first time he heard the 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 term WPA was in I'm Still Here from Follies. Uh, so my point being that aside from all the other reasons why we love theater so much, uh, it's educational. You bet. <laughs> Absolutely true. Oh, and just quickly, another thing that I'm going uh, that I actually will probably have to miss because I will be in D.C., but um, our listeners should know that coming up on February 17 and 18 at the Queens Theater in Flushing Meadows Park is a show called Broadway Valentine, uh, billed as an unforgettable evening of the greatest love songs ever written from Broadway, pop and country music and the American songbook performed by real-life Broadway couples. And the couples are Cody Williams and Alicia Umfris, Aaron Dilley and Stephen Buntrock, 
and Taylor Fry and Kyle Dean Massey. And among other things, that's interesting because uh, for those of our listeners who don't know Taylor Fry, uh, I realize that Taylor is a name that could be uh, a male or female, but he is male. So there is a male couple in this in this evening, Taylor Fry and Kyle Dean Massey. And it's, uh, as I said, a Queens Theater in the park. And it says tickets from $20. So you might want to Google that and check it out. Um, I, I have the box office number right here, 718-760-0064. And the website is www.queenstheater, with an R-E at the end, dot org. All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Radio. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play has us. Anywhere that you can get finer podcasts, you can find This Week on Broadway. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today are in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. And uh, so, Peter, after I butchered last week's trivia (laughs) question, what happened? I just stumbled over reading through it. So uh, (laughs) perhaps, but I also posted it on the uh, on the webpage in case people didn't understand what the heck I was talking about. (laughs) So. Did we get any answers on that? (laughs) We got one. Maybe that's the reason why. Who knows? Yeah, Stephen Bell did uh, get the uh, answer. But anyway, the question was, in a world-famous musical, a group of men whistle a famous 19th century song. Not a song from a musical, but a famous song from way back when. But it just so happened to have the exact same title of a song that was written specifically for the show. But there was sung by a group of women. What's the one name of both songs in the show? Well, the show is West Side Story, and you may recall that the sharks, who have been unfairly treated by Lieutenant Shrank, whistle America, better known as My Country, Tis of Thee. But the actual name of the song is America, and of course the shark women sing America. Uh, You might say, no, the shark men and women sing America, but that's only in the film. In the original staging of West Side Story, as Michael will verify, I assume, next week, uh, there is – it's simply a a number uh, for the women. So so that is the – answer for last week and congratulations for steve bell uh, who got it uh, james i guess you're saying under very difficult circumstances yes. so <laughs> all right this week a novel in the 30s was made into a film in the 50s but there the sex of the protagonist was changed from a man to a woman when the musical of the novel opened in the 60s the protagonist was a man again but a woman wound up stealing the show. What's the name of the property that never changed, always had the same name, and the woman who stole the show? Okay. If you mm. know the answer to that, email us at triviabroadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. She's here to drops of water, the pole, the pole, invisible but really real, your eyes, your eyes, and soon you're looking in a mirror, 
skies you can't get nearer. You are both right there. 